Hello everyone, it's September 20th, 2021. This week we have Othniel Mbamalu on the show from Advanced Rockets Core, a company daring to do some very innovative stuff in the field of launch vehicles, which is a cold open that really speaks for itself. So let's not waste any more time. It's a big show today and liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 327 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. Uh, and Dennis is away this week uh, at a conference. Yeah, he's he's running a whole ass conference. <laughs> so A whole ass conference, yeah. It's been a slow news week, so we have a big interview coming up, so it's not going to impact things too much. But Dennis will be back at the end of the show to do his uh, This Week in Spaceflight History, so you will be hearing from him when he magically pops back up. <laughs> so as far as what little space news there is, it's kind of interesting to talk about, or at least I think so, is uh, Blue Origin does appear to be transporting a transporter erector to uh, their launch site at the Cape, which I think is kind of a big deal because uh, this is, you know, a very visible step forward uh, who knows when they're going to put a rocket you know next to yeah. it but well so so andy z sent us this uh via email and the, <laughs> the subject line of the email is actual blue origin new glue new glenn hardware no really and then uh, <laughs> in the in the body there's the link and then it says now all we need is a rocket to put it on or to <laughs> all we need is a rocket to put on it and well rockets or engines to go on the rocket <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yep. A lot of other little things. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the clickbait title. You really did have me going uh, this week with that with that subject line. Um, But yeah, I mean, the transporter vector is kind of a bluish gray and it's, you know, got a lot of voids in it because it's mostly just uh, struts going back and forth. And it looks like launchpad hardware. Not too much to say about it. Yeah. I mean, like I said, beyond the fact that they're actually moving it out there. So I guess this is a good sign or, or, or do you think that yeah. it'll get set up there and then just sit there for several years? I think it'll sit there for quite a while before there's a rocket, but I, I guess you're right. This is a sign that they've at least, you know, cemented a, a decent amount of their externals, you know, so they, mm-hmm. they know how to build a, a launch tower for it, but it doesn't look like it has any service arms or anything. So who knows? They have a whole factory down there, which, you know, people often forget. I think when I was last there, they were still like breaking ground. Um, So it would be mm-hmm. interesting to drive by again because it was just a whole bunch of marshland or whatever, you know, there was like nothing there. And now there's a big giant building there where they're building uh, presumably a rocket, at least engines, something, I don't know. But yeah, like that's there, and yet we we just haven't seen anything because Blue Origin's so secretive, and they are very slow moving. Let's say so. Um, I guess this is something. You know, we get to look at a transporter erector. Okay, well there is that. Yeah. Well, I guess with that. So since it's such a big interview of a show, we're just gonna do some short and sweets, and then we're gonna move on to the interview. So let's do that now. Yeah, it's a, it's a good interview. <laughs> Just two quick short and sweets for this uh, quick segment of the show. Ben, what's the first one? Okay, first, uh, Space Operations Mission Directorate and Exploration Systems Development Mission Directorate have been split. So back in 2011, NASA saw the Exploration Directorate dwindling in size and scope, mostly due to the cancellation of Constellation. And so they decided to merge the two directorates to create the Human Exploration and Operations Mission Directorate. Now, with HEOMD consuming half of NASA's entire budget, the decision was made to split the two apart again. Kathy Leaders, who will be taking the operations side, seems eager to work with Jim Free, who will be taking the exploration side. 
I don't know which of us is Batman and which one is Robin, she said at the town hall where the change was announced. All right, and then next up, Starliner slips to 2020. While this schedule is not set in stone, it appears highly likely as Boeing and NASA will soon have to decide whether to repair the current service module or replace it altogether. Continuing investigations of the leaky propellant valves show little sign of arriving at a conclusion. We know that the Teflon valve seals leaked, allowing NTO to mix with some residual moisture on the dry side of the valve, creating nitric acid. However, what exactly is to be done has yet to be determined. Further investigation steps may include removing the valves to inspect them from the wet side, but either way, Leaders does not sound optimistic about the odds of orbital flight test 2 lifting off by the end of the year. Alright, so this week uh, we have with us Othniel Mbamalu from Advanced Rockets Core, which is an interesting company that has some very, very interesting ideas that I can't wait to ask all the questions that I have about. <laughs> um, so, Othniel, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Normally, we start off with just like a real brief introduction, and you are the founder and CEO of this company. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So, I guess just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to found this company, which, uh, like I said, is a pretty interesting one. Sure. Um, I think interesting is a keyword uh, because uh, there's, there's a lot of activity in in, um, in industry right now, and until and unless you have um, a functional launch vehicle with uh, some track record, it's pretty much uh, an interesting idea, as it were, um, worth exploring certainly. But the the idea for us, or the goal for us, is to go from sort of an ideation stage of phase to um, having actual launch vehicles. I think the uh, the systems that we are working on and uh, we're doing research work on and um, uh, trying to understand operational modes and what have you. Um, I think those systems are certainly uh, worth the, the sort of the effort, um, both in financial, uh, but also in sort of uh, brain power investments that, um, that that's going into it. Um, I, I founded ARC about uh, five years ago, um, four to five years ago. I've always wanted to solve the problem i think this is sort of there's a thematic uh there's a theme to it in in most of the new um uh, aerospace startups especially especially launch startups where you're trying to reduce the cost of access to space uh specific to the fact that if you're able to do that you would be able to open up industries that otherwise uh would have found it cost prohibitive to to do stuff in space and i started looking at all the different uh possible uh, solutions and uh possible paths take uh, to uh, arrive at said said solution and the best ideas seem to be um, around hybrid systems systems that can operate um, in two separate modes that are adaptive uh, could adjust from operating specific to what the uh, the, the mission needs uh, would be uh, for a given time and then transition into a different mode but from an efficiency standpoint uh, i think certainly that's important but really from a cost um, and reliability standpoint i think those factors combined is the reason why we have we think we have a product or a system that uh, would certainly change industry so we're excited to to share that and discuss the details that we would be able to discuss with with you guys we should start out with the launch vehicle itself right um this is a whole proposal which is a very unique one so go ahead describe that for us like what does this thing look like sure um a, a good example a good place to start with um especially because the, it's been around in industry for a little while and it, it'd be easier for listeners to sort of get an, a general idea of what's been discussed is uh the Skylon Saber system. And the idea being the sort of the, the power required in, in some ways to uh, achieve orbit 
um, is possible um, only through rocket propulsion. I mean, well, not only through rocket propulsion, but given current technologies and, and what have you, through rocket propulsion, but rockets are not exactly the most efficient systems from different different measures of efficiency. And they do not allow for as much flexibility as air-ridden systems do. And what we've been able to uh, do is basically in the same line as what the, uh, the sabers of this world are doing is we've created a hybrid of a rocket engine and um, an air rating system, um, allowing for us to operate with the same efficiencies, at least for a significant portion of the flight. The same efficiencies as an air rating system or most air rating systems, maybe not as efficient as a, maybe an ultra high bypass uh, turbofan or what have you, but certainly within the range of uh, a turbojet um, or even a ramjet, operate within those, which are significantly better than what you would get from almost every other rocket out there, at least. Um, chemical rockets that we operate today. That allows for us to operate efficiently, allows allows for us to have uh, greater flexibility, but it also, because it's a hybrid system, it also allows for us to operate um, in a vacuum of space, being able to achieve orbit. Uh, and I think another key aspect to that and some of the systems that we're working on would be uh, looking at altitude compensation um, as a key part of our strategy. If you're able to pull that off, um, altitude comp compensating systems are extremely difficult to sort of design because they have to, in some ways, if you're using a fixed geometry, adjust to whatever altitude you're flying at and do that efficiently. Uh, there's a lot of issues with there are a lot of thermal concerns uh, and there's a lot of this is specifying what the efficiency would be at every given altitude and whether or not that's worthwhile um, and being able to measure for that all the way from, well, from sea level all the way to, uh, to orbit. Whereas I could design a, a bell nozzle with a fixed um, expansion ratio and we could just, you know, deal with whatever the inefficiencies are and just assume that it's fairly manageable. And um, But with altitude compensating systems, it becomes a little bit more, uh, more complex maybe. And so these are some of the problems that, um, we've been able to solve, and these are some of the solutions that we're looking to deploy in the market. This is what makes our system different. I did mention the Skyland system and the Saber system. Um, our system is significantly, uh, demonstrably different from uh, some of these, for, from that system specifically. Uh, it solves problems that has kept the Skyland system maybe from flying. In other words, they're still in R&D phase, phase for many of the systems. Uh, we're looking at not this from not just from a technological standpoint, but but also from a sort of a finance standpoint and developmental timeline standpoint. And we're looking at how do we do this cost effectively? How do we do this quickly? Uh, what solutions are available um, in the market operationally that we could take advantage of and use um, instead of having to recreate those systems? And how do we integrate uh, with our novel uh, patented systems to ensure that we achieve uh, reasonably amount, uh, high enough amount of, uh, reasonably high enough gains in performance and efficiency, uh, enough to warrant the kinds of investment that would be required to make those systems work. If you get a 5% increase in efficiency and in performance and reliability, um, as a metric of sort of performance gain, that might not be enough for the sort of investment that might have to go into an endeavor. But if you're looking at somewhere close to uh, three times to four times increase in efficiency, um, an increase in, in reliability and, and some of those other things, then depending on how much you need, uh, is needed for uh, full development, 
those systems start to look, uh, start to look, start to become very, very reasonable and attractive for both uh, operators, uh, but also investors. Yeah. So I have like uh, so many questions. So I guess, <laughs> I, I guess just to start off with um, the vehicle rendering that I see before me has uh, what looks like three engines or like three air intakes. And then I don't know what kind of combustion you have going on towards the back. I can't really see that. I don't really know. There's not a lot of details. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a very smooth render. <laughs> um, so, so first, um, on your website, you have three, uh, three terms, ACE, DELVE, and LEAPS. Uh, DELVE is the rocket, LEAPS is the engine. What is ACE? ACE is supposed to be uh, the name for the, the combination of those two systems. So ACE is basically the, the name for the launch vehicle itself. The conventional uh, for the launch system, not launch vehicle, um, it's almost like uh, the convention is usually, so for, I'll give you an example, the Falcon 9, for example, or Atlas 5. You have, uh, the RD 180, 181, depending on what the configuration is, I think. And, um, you just have the Atlas launch vehicle. So it doesn't have a separate name. Uh, whereas, uh, we have distinct name for the vehicle uh, as a launch vehicle, um, or as a platform. Uh, we have a distinct name for the propulsion system and then a combination of both. And here's why. Um, our launch vehicle, or at least the design for the launch vehicle itself, would see multiple applications in uh, many different things that are not launch. Couldn't discuss the, sort of the details of that, um, as it were, but it, it would see application in things that are not launch. So it isn't just a launch vehicle. The, the specifics of that, of that vehicle design allows for application and not just application, obviously, but application that allows for operational advantages that you do not have with some other systems or some other, uh, some other designs. And that's specifically why we chose to go with a separate naming, naming convention that would be the, that would be the case, um, in industry. So. Okay. So, so it's almost, yeah, it's like you're, You've got a name for the technology and then a name for this application. It's the ACE launch vehicle, but the vehicle itself okay. has a different name. Yeah. So how much can you tell us about the engines and how those work? Because you had made uh, some references to uh, the Sabre engine, uh, which is something that I find very fascinating. But obviously, like you said, it has had many problems, like you said, still in the testing and development stage to some degree. Yeah, which which is crazy. Like they, they said that they had a, a test stand fight like they, they were able to, to fire up their engine you know on the ground and like when we heard that news and that was a couple of years ago we were like wow really they they actually got that far that's really cool and so like yeah like like you said david like it's uh saber is is really moving along slow and it's not it's not for lack of funding it's not for lack of having sort of expertise i'm certain that they are actually working with Boeing. There was an investment from Boeing. And I spoke mm -hmm. to the guy uh, the, in, in charge of the, the hypersonics pro program at, at Boeing. And he, he mentioned sort of that collaboration between those two, those two companies. So it's not for lack of having access to funding or access to, you know, facilities that they would need for that. I think uh, it's the, it's a question and this is, I'm obviously not privy to the, to the sort of the data that they're collecting, but I, I believe it's it's subject to uh, reliability factors within the system. Conceptually, I, I don't see any reason why you, the system wouldn't work as it were. Uh, maybe not the same kinds of performance that have been predicted, but um, I think it's more a sub subject to re how reliable the system um, is, and and you know it has to be up to a certain standard, uh, and they've not been able to do that, um, and 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 so that's. That's what I think the primary challenge is because all you need to do is you could take a conventional turbojet and you could stick, 
it's a bit simplistic, yeah, but you could stick a, a pre-cooler there. You could run some of that those numbers and determine what the uh, sort of if your intake temperature is at a certain given point, um, what are the advantages that you get from this, uh, from having to use a pre-cooler? And then you could just go from there and sort of um, iteratively design all the other systems or subsystems that goes that goes with that. At least if you look at it in the case of the SpaceX's of this world and how quickly they go through some of that stuff, reaction engines isn't launching. They're not running an operation as large as SpaceX um, and they're not able to get, I mean, we're talking propulsion system. The vehicle is a different ballgame altogether. Mm-hmm. But yeah. You brought up a good question, which is how do you deal with those with those heat loads like you have a lot of i mean this okay so first of all i guess we should talk about the vehicle like what what does a launch look like like how would this thing get to orbit if you could describe that sure uh i could talk about that and 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 then circle back to the propulsion system maybe not in excessive detail but enough to uh sort of uh form a, a reasonable understanding as to what it is uh we're doing the vehicle is supposed to be a vertical uh take of a uh, vehicle a vertical launch rather uh, and the reason why we chose to go with vertical launch is because uh complexity of landing gears um and having to carry all of those systems on board the design philosophy for me um, I, I designed a vehicle, I designed a propulsion system, um, and my design philosophy has always been as much as you can um, have every system serve a, sort of a redundant purpose. In, 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 this, in, in other words, um, I could have a system that's supposed to be a flap, and if I could turn that system into, it, it turn that flap into functioning as a landing gear or something, um, I would try to design for that. Um, and so always looking for multi, uh, multi-use systems or subsystems within the system itself. So uh, landing gears to me didn't seem to uh, sort of uh, offer themselves up for that. You basically land if you were doing a horizontal landing um, and then you store them away during flight and, and all of that stuff. And, and that's pretty much it. And so that sort of, you know, took that out of the sort of mix. We weren't going to use that. So vertical launch, the advantages for doing horizontal sort of takeoffs and stuff. And the other thing with wings, I uh, didn't see a lot of much utility. It's going to be a really, um, it's going to be a high-speed vehicle. Um, you cannot store fuel in, in the wings. Um, it, that being the case, uh, maybe at, you know, slower speeds, you might be able to do that. Um, so I could go into the rational, but in a nutshell, it's a it's a vertical launch vehicle. Uh, it flies up to a specific uh, predetermined altitude. Uh, we're still trying to decide exactly what the optimal altitude is. There's a there's a paper that the guys at Skylon actually put out a few years ago. It's called the Thermal Paradox. And the idea is if you're flying at a certain given Mach number for the heat load that you'd have to deal with, if you were to uh, if you were to fly faster, it reduces the time that you'd have to spend uh, within the atmosphere having to deal with that heat load, which means even though your heat loads are really heavy, the reduction in, in time spent means in, in total, total amount of heat that a vehicle would have to deal with is much less uh, than otherwise. Okay, so um, we have to determine an altitude for where this is optimal. Uh, every vehicle would have a sort of a different sort of prescribed altitude. And uh, when we get to that altitude within the atmosphere, we would air breathe for as long as we can. Um, so everything helps us get off the ground. Air breathing helps us gain significant Mach numbers. So we're going from Mach zero all the way to say Mach five. So we're touching sort of the hypersonic flight regime. That's the the, the ultimate goal, and and maybe less, maybe Mach four point something, uh, depending on 
how much efficiency gains you get from flying uh, faster within the atmosphere. And so when we get to that uh, specified Mach number, we, we do a vertical climb. Uh, when we get to a certain altitude where everything is no longer possible, we switch to rocket mode. And this happens seamlessly within the propulsion system. You have in most systems, you have a separate rocket system, a separate air, air breathing system, or something of that nature. You're going to have practically not unnoticeable uh, transition from air breathing to, uh, to a rocket system. Um, this is good for a bunch of things as far as operational, for the, operationally for the vehicle. Um, and for the crew uh, on board, if you're going to have a man, uh, if it's going to be a manned system. And so that's what the flight, a typical flight is supposed to look like from the vehicle's uh, point of view. What I've heard about, again, going back to Skyline, is that in order to get the advantage of having an air breathing engine, you would have to have a much more like gradual ascent because you would have to spend more time in the atmosphere in order to breathe yeah. that air. So I'm, I'm assuming that this thing does something like that. Um, so it doesn't necessarily go straight up or, you know, as close as straight up as it can, but instead it has to spend a little bit more time, you know, getting up to Mach 4 point whatever. Um, is that the case or is this still more or less the same kind of ascent profile as a normal rocket? Yeah, it's not the same ascent profile as the Skylon. It is um, sort of a combination of a rocket ascent profile and a majority of the, uh, you'd know this obviously, um, uh, we want to, what we're trying to do as much as possible is uh, leave the thickest part of the atmosphere as quickly as possible. Now, but at the same time, we want to be able to air breathe. And so what we've decided is we're going to do a vertical launch, uh, get us out of the thicker part of the atmosphere as quickly as possible, and then find an optimal, an, an optimal altitude where air breathing is still possible, but we're not dealing with the same uh, densities as we're dealing with at sea level or something of that nature. And then try to accelerate. I'll give you an example. The SR-71, I think, did 83,000 feet, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere around that. Um, altitude, and we might see ourselves doing uh, and was able to do Mach 3.5 thereabout, at least as reported. And so we'd be able to do something of that nature, uh, climb all the way to about 80, 80 something thousand feet, and then do our air breathing phase there, accelerate, which which means we're not dealing with sort of the majority of the density of the atmosphere, which reduces concerns with thermal issues and drag. Uh, but it allows for us to take advantage of the air and, and you know, so it's, it's sort of a mix. We, we're still trying to sort of do what rockets do, uh, but not entirely because rockets would, 80,000 feet is not even close. The rockets would try to punch out of that as quickly as possible and, and, um, and head in head and forward. It, so, yeah. So noticeably different, but not, not grossly different than, uh, yeah. the normal ascent. Interesting. I mean, it, I mean, that, that's exactly like what, what my guess would have been, but it's just thinking about it and like imagining not necessarily flying to space on one of these things. Cause, uh, I, I am not a rich person, but like imagine seeing one of these things launching, you know, on a, on a webcast and, you know, looking at, looking at that, um, CG model on the side of the screen and we're right. pitching over, but we're not, we're not dumping all the way over. It's not a super shallow ascent off the pad, but you kind of interesting. Cool. Yeah. And that, that the, the being rich part is a really important point because if we are able to achieve the sort of the performances that we're looking at, the price points um, that we're talking about would be um, reasonably affordable for quote unquote regular folk to um, afford a, a ticket to, I mean, we want to, we want to, we want to create a system, uh, an ecosystem where 
the major cost would be the cost you spend at an orbital facility, say a hotel, mm -hmm. an orbital hotel or something on the moon, then um, the cost of actually having to get there. Uh, a bulk of the cost right now is the cost of launch. Um, certainly, the cost of spending a few days on the International Space Station is way up there, but that should be, if that remains the case, then sure, I mean, fine. I mean, I don't think it, it will, because if you have uh, low cost, uh, you know, you could deliver water, you could deliver essentials to the space station at a, at a relatively uh, cheaper rate at, than you would at this point, then obviously that cost transfers. And so we, we want to make it really affordable for, and we think the only way to do this, I think is pretty key through some, something of a, if we, except we have space elevators, um, rockets will not be able to achieve that irrespective right. of how advanced they are. I mean, you could have government subsidies and what have you, but the, within the confines of the sort of the performance of rockets, um, there's a limit to what it is they could do. Um, and that would limit how much you could do in space. Everything systems, on the other hand, much more flexible, allows for uh, for us to play with costing uh, a little bit more than you would uh, be able to with rockets. So, and, and by and by flexibility, I'm assuming you're talking about like cross range capability. So cross range is an important capability. I think mostly the the, the this is sort of an important um, requirement by the Air Force. Uh, the space shuttle had that uh, to a certain degree, and we're trying to design <clears throat> design our system to have a significant cross range downrange of the of the launch site for for military applications uh maybe even for safety uh safety con uh, reasons uh we're trying to build continuous intact abort capability um into our launch vehicle for a significant portion of uh sort of the flight uh, uh profile certainly as close enough to the launch pad as we possibly could and definitely uh, anywhere from in-flight to abort from orbit. And also, I don't think we ever said this is a single-stage orbit, right? It is not a single-stage orbit. Oh, it is not. Orbit. Okay. It looks like it on the thing, so I wasn't sure. Okay, so at what point does the first and second stage separate, and uh, what does that part of the launch look like? So the purpose of the first stage is uh, to, obviously, uh, what's the boost of the uh, stage, uh, to get the rocket to accelerate up to, say, Mach 5, thereabout, and then uh, you have a separation event, which possibly could happen at, so we have a vertical launch. Uh, we fly vertically, well, relatively vertical, so 45 degree angle, something of that nature, until we get to about 85,000 feet. Uh, the, the greater component uh, becomes horizontal, and so the horizontal gradient um, increases significantly. Uh, we air breathe for that period of time, and then we, set the, we have a separation event. Um, and so that separation would happen at around 80, 80 something thousand feet. And then second stage uh, takes over and then uh, continues the rest of the mission to orbit. So I think that explains another question that I was going to ask about how the first stage in this case comes back. So you're not talking about having to do, you know, like an orbital reentry, because uh, I was wondering about how you dealt with the thermal loads during that part of, you know, the reentry, which is still going to be a bit of an issue, I guess, but not nearly as much. So that actually takes care of that question. It's cool to do that, to be able to do like a full reentry, but at what cost is the key thing here. And if you want to do a full reentry from orbit for a single stage system, it's maybe certainly possible if you're able to achieve single stage orbit with reasonable payload. The question is, how reusable is my vehicle, you know, the mechanical loads and the thermal loads that it have to uh, endure for that return trip? Um, wouldn't it be more reasonable to, from a cost perspective, to separate the vehicle, the, the system, and have a two stages, 
First stage doesn't have to deal with as much of that. Most of the cost is sunk into that. And then the second stage, you could reuse it a quarter, maybe a quarter of the times that you would reuse the first stage, which is fine and reasonable if you're going to reuse it as many times as we're predicting we're going to be reusing our first stage. I remember one problem, again, going back to Saber, because I'm really just kind of thinking about that and all the problems that they've had. So I remember that one big thing was how do you cool down that air um, when you know, you're know you at Mach 3, 4, 5 or whatever um, in, in order to make it suitable for combustion? Uh, because they have to get it down to, you know, they have to turn it into liquid. But is that something that this vehicle would have to do? The, the Saber did not. Uh, the Saber system doesn't turn the, uh, the air into liquid. The I think it was a lace. Well, right. Okay. Well, I th- I think it was just above just the above the viewpoint. Point. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the lace, uh, which was a, a, the engine that uh, preceded the, the saber, actually did go all the way to uh, liquefaction. Um, they had a lot of problems with channel blockage and, and a whole bunch of other things, which is still a problem for uh, chilling the air down at the rates that uh, the guys at Reaction Engines are looking to do for the saber. But um, a heck lot better and easier to handle and then the former. We <clears throat> we have several thermal control sort of techniques on, on the system, on, on our propulsion system that allows for us to keep the air at a usable temperature. We don't intend to cool the air down to at the same rates as the guys um, at reaction engines uh, are looking to. We want to cool the air down for every given Mach number uh, to allow for reasonably efficient, reasonably efficient combustion uh, within a combustion chamber. So that's a that that's a huge difference um, because in, in one case you're trying to keep the air consistent at a specific temperature, which is hard to do, and in one case you are how low for a given Mach number and a uh, given temperature, how low can we drop the temperature? Uh, to allow for efficient operation. And if we are able to drop that down, it might not be as efficient as the saver for a given Mach number. And it might be slightly warmer uh, than the saver for a given Mach number, but it's a heck of a lot easier to design for. And then obviously you can build in all the other capabilities with time. You can say, okay, well, let's try to improve on our thermal performance, uh, but we don't want to go for that right off the bat. It's going to be extremely difficult to uh, achieve, I believe. And I think that's, again, like I said, that's probably part of the reason why the system isn't, it's just reliability issues with uh, pre-coolers and sort of the dimensions of their pre-cooler um, and how that plays into just being able to run a system uh, consistently is, could be quite problematic. Uh, but that's just one of the uh, thermal solutions that we have on board. We have a host of other things that are near, are certainly more interesting um, than just using a pre-cooler uh, on board. I will not be discussing those, but that's the sort of the, uh, uh, that's sort of the uh, couple of other, other pretty clever techniques that we're using. And that's part of the uh, um, sort of the, the secret sauce or sort of the market advantage that we have in looking to deploy. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to ask was like, obviously details are going to be, I mean, they're, they're probably difficult for you to talk about at this point And that would be if you, you know, if it was wise to talk about them. So my, my question was going to be, yeah, like, is, is that the bulk of your innovation? And it, it sounds like, yeah, if you're calling it secret sauce, that's, that's what's allowing you to actually believe that, that you can bring this, uh, into reality, which by the way is m- a much more attractive, uh, attribute, uh, than high efficiency. <laughs> actually being able to build the darn thing. <laughs> Everything lives and dies on 
lives and dies on thermals in many ways, especially at high speed. Yeah. And so we, the emphasis has been on thermals, thermals, thermals all the time. And um, we found a, a couple of really interesting um, ways. Uh, we do have a bunch of, a couple of uh, US patents, both granted and pending, uh, that covers the subject matter. And we think that's a very key market market advantage for us, allowing for us to operate as efficiently uh, as efficiently as as we're claiming uh, to be able to. So yes, um, it is probably uh, there are so many subsystems that are unique um, that it's difficult for me to say. Uh, yeah, this is the thing because every single subsystem that they all play into uh, they all play along um, into each other, um, allowing for the the kinds of efficiencies that we're looking at, and so. If I were to take away specific system lo- located in a specific part of the of the propulsion system, we're not going to get as much of a of, of an efficiency gain, maybe reasonable. And and what we're trying to do is build five percent onto the system and another five percent somewhere else and another five percent somewhere else, which reduces the uh, system a subsystem based uh, sort of requirements. In other words, if a single subsystem were to fail or not operate as efficiently as efficiently as expected uh we wouldn't be calling up the mission uh we still be able to operate uh with reasonable amounts of efficiency and if everything's working um then you're not putting as much so two ways if something's not working once the subsystem is not working properly um, or as efficiently um you're still able to operate and if everything is operating efficiently um, it reduces the amount of load that every other subsystem has to uh, to carry or the sort of the requirement that's placed on every other subsystem. And so reducing that load in- increases the sort of the life uh, expectancy for some of those life-limited parts, um, increases efficiency and reliability and, and what have you. So those, those are key uh, design philosophies for me is multiple... A single system doing multiple things as much as is possible, but also reducing reliability on a single subsystem. This would reduce cost of development. This would reduce time for developing said system. Um, and it also means we can actually go build a thing. Like the last thing you want to do is get stuck in a loop of R&D. I mean, Skylon, when Sky, when uh, Alan Bond, I have a lot of respect for him. I really do. Um, it's done a whole lot for the, for industry. And I definitely be inspired by a lot of what the work he's done. But I was probably about two years old when he started work on the LACE system. Um, and when he started work on the Skylon system, I was, you know, in my early teenage and they're still not flying. And so we, I don't want to get stuck in that. I've been following his work for many, 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 many years, a decade end. Um, so I'm learning from that, not just the, the engineering, but also the, uh, development the timeline and uh, sort of the economics of it. So so let me ask you a, a design philosophy question. If you have um, sort of this distributed tolerance uh, over design in all of your subsystems where, you know, any given subsystem performing uh, at the upper end of its efficiency range takes load off of all the others. Like, obviously, that's that's something that is true of every system. But how how do you is that integral to preventing failure cascades is is that like leaving some extra slack in the chain so when you tug on one end the far end doesn't necessarily move because there's gaps between each of the links or is this potentially getting you getting you into a situation where you know you have too many subsystems fail and suddenly that that failure just cascades all the way down the line and uh 
like like is that actually giving you a gap or is that just giving you extra rope to potentially get hung so that, that that's a pretty really good question i, I think um i'll answer this in two sort of two ways the first being um yeah almost every that case with that would apply to almost every system but we're designing specifically for that and so the, the fact that every other system would benefit from that um is good and it, it's true uh, but some systems do not place emphasis on designing for that um, on the get-go. They basically just hope and, well, not hope, that's probably not the right <laughs> word, but um, sort of assume that that's going to be uh, the case because they've known the systems to operate and know what the failure modes are and all of that stuff. We're designing from ground up specific to that, um, uh, taking that into into account. That's one, too. This is to prevent um, uh, cascades of, a failure. So if you had, it's sort of a redundancy that you have on a system like the Falcon 9. Um, when you have nine thrusters uh, nine, in the first stage, at least in that, in that case, and one of those uh, were to uh, become non-functional for whatever reasons, um, you could just trust more, increase the your trust percentages and the remainder eight, uh, and make adjustments and allow for you to still complete your, your mission. In fact, this was the case for one of the missions. I'm trying to remember specifically which one. Um, and in the case of our uh, of our system, it reduces the chance that one system failing would lead to the end of the mission or to a catastrophic catastrophic failure. That's what it does. And because it, the the the, rely, the reliance on a single system, in other words, I'm distributing. Uh, capability um, amongst several different several different systems, allowing for me to not have to rely entirely on. I'll give you an example. So um, the reason I'm being a bit vague is I'm trying to not discuss uh, too many details. Yeah. But uh, I'll give you an example. If I had if I had an injector, for instance, um, and the injector was supposed to uh, operate at a very specific pressure um, and um, but because I'm going to be operating in two different modes or two different uh, I need to specific to the fuel flow and a bunch of other things one of the things I could do is I could use a pintle injector for instance that would atomize the flow and has a wider range uh, for being able to do that or I could make my um, I could make my turbo pump much more robust. Um, allowing for it to have a wider range, or I could build in two turbo pumps, one specific to low pressure conditions and another specific to high pressure conditions. Now, um, if I have a lot of margin, where and what that really means is if I don't have to worry so much about all the mass that I have to carry with me because it's not a rocket, it's an air breathing system, which I think is an important point that I we could talk touch on, I could decide, well, I could add a pintle injector uh, and I could add two different, uh, uh, instead of having one single turbo pump uh, that allows for me to operate within the full range, uh, but might not be as efficient. And if it fails, everything goes south. I might have two separate uh, turbo pumps, which might not be an option for uh, most. Uh, and then all the valves that come, valving that comes with that and plumbing that comes with that and everything else, I might decide to have two separate um, uh, turbo pumps. Um, and the complexity that comes with that, but that's not a problem because um, we're able to design to be as robust and not worried so much about all the ma extra mass because 
It just means this system will work and it works every single time. That's an example. It, it would build in a lot of robustness into the system where you could have customers that might come to you and say, hey, um, the failure rate for this system is extremely low. We don't think we need XYZ. We want to be able to carry more payload. And if you're able to shave off XYZ, we would be able to do more. So uh, we don't mind. Can you guys do this? But we want to build that into the system to start with. So failures are extremely rare. That's one of the reasons why several, several other reasons, but that's one of the key reasons why we're doing, we do that. Now that, that's really cool. I, you know, it's a hybrid rocket. I didn't think I was going to bring hybrid cars into the discussion. Um, obviously we don't, we don't build hybrid cars for their reliability. Internal combustion engine and battery electric vehicles are, are plenty reliable on their own. And obviously the stakes are lower, but like kind of what you're describing is the idea of, you know, a Prius where the electric engine is really good in one regime and the gas engine is really good in a different regime. And so even though you have a duplication where you have a gas motor and an electric motor, there's that duplication, but, but it still allows overall system efficiencies. And then for you, you can even bring in uh, sort of that, that risk isolation of having, you know, a, a reliable electric engine and a reliable gas engine, but together their reliability is multiplied, even though they wouldn't be quite as efficient at each other's tasks, they could still in theory do it. Okay. That's, that's really cool. I, I really appreciate that, uh, little insight in, into design philosophy. That's very cool. Um, I mean, and, and to add to that, uh, speaking of electric systems, um, when uh, I, I filed my first uh, patent when I was uh, 16, um, and it covered um, an electrically pumped uh, rocket system. About 10 years plus later, um, Rocket Labs and the Rutherford system uh, that's electrically pumped uh, came into the public for, but so that gives me a lot of sort of sense of pride that, you know, I worked on the system. I had patents filed for this. Obviously it wasn't granted at the time. It wasn't well written. I had, I wrote the patent myself, so I'm not exactly a patent attorney. <laughs> um, but that's another important thing. It's like you're taking a thermodynamics problem and you turn it into a software problem because yeah, electric systems have limitations and all of that. And we're not going to go into the details of that. But within the scope of the power that an electric motor could, could output right now and, and the size of the batteries that you could carry, you don't need to match your fuel flow to the amount of trust that you need to generate. You could say, this is the amount of fuel we need in the combustion chamber for a specific trust level and just stick to that. Um, and then the electric motor could vary whatever you know power that's actually required to make that happen. Whereas in gas generator systems and a bunch of other sort of uh, cycles, you need to match the trust with the amount of power that's required by the, uh, the turbo pump to operate efficiently. Uh, and so these are some of the advantages that we, um, speaking of which actually a propulsion system does have, I'm not going to say specifically where and how, but I have a history of wanting to work with electrically uh, powered systems. There is some electricity at play somewhere or another. Um, details. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that is so yeah yeah uh you know there's electricity at play in my in my gas powered vehicle too <laughs> sorry i'm i'm not making fun of you it's just i i understand like the restraint and like that's yeah i i appreciate the teaser that's a that's a very good teaser so one thing i want to know about 
what does the business end of this thing look like exactly? Um, is it like multiple nozzles or just one or how does that function? Um, we actually have multiple nozzles and that looks like an aerospike nozzle if mm -hmm. you look closely. And yeah. mm -hmm. uh, so we couldn't have a single nozzle uh, for starters, but, and so we do have multiple nozzles um, and I will not disclose as to whether or not we have single, a single combustion chamber or multiple combustion chambers. The key thing is uh, allowing for us to to take advantage of altitude compensation. Now, one of the key things that comes up every time someone brings up a uh, uh, an aerospike nozzle are the thermal concerns. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, um, they are so huge. Um, in, in fact, quite almost prohibitive in some sense. Uh, we have innovation that actually solves uh, that problem, especially because we're an air breathing system. We actually do not, and it's a statement of fact, we actually do not have to deal with um, the thermal issues that other aerospike systems have to because we've solved for that. That's one okay. of the, so if wow. we have s several systems that we are, what, what degree of certainty do you have with this? That system, uh, we have an almost absolute certainty, uh, degree of certainty as to whether or not we've solved that problem because we have. Okay. Well, that's a big statement because I was going to ask, is this an aerospike or, I mean, it looks like one. So there is, uh, I guess some number of nozzles, um, surrounding the central spike there, right? Is that correct? Like, okay. Correct. And you've solved the thermal issue with the aerospike. So you're able to cool that, uh, yep. somehow as a result of being an air breathing rocket. Okay. <laughs> yep. And all, all using human technology, no alien technology whatsoever. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that, that's the big thing. Like we, we talked to, uh, Firefly before they restructured and we were, we were so excited for an aerospike. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and they, they also had a, a truncated, uh, does that, does yeah. a truncated spike become a plug? I can never remember the difference between Trunk, a plug yeah, nozzle. Uh, well, plug nozzles are usually slightly different architecture, especially going okay. into the combustion chamber itself. Um, aerospikes, oh, on the other hand, tend to be uh, slightly independent of the uh, of the combustion chamber or the, oh, okay. the, the nozzle. Yeah. So. Oh, okay, I see. I see. So, yeah. So you've got a, a truncated spike, which um, leads to very interesting debates about efficiency uh, mm -hmm. and and what kind of pressures you see uh, directly underneath the plug, um, mm -hmm. and like. You know, air breathing is amazing and it's something that, that, that really would be revolutionary. But like, honestly, at this point, I, I almost feel more emotionally invested in an aerospike, um, okay. because we can't, we've come so darn close to seeing an aerospike fly multiple times and it's just never happened. So yeah, cue the X33, the NASB mm -hmm. and a bunch of other, but yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you, you you engender huge amounts of uh, uh, of just emotional buy-in and emo emotional investment from me as soon as you uh, put out a, a artist render with with uh, an aerospike uh, or or a, a patent with an aerospike. Yeah, so uh, I mean really... that's like twenty five percent gains in efficiency plus minus. Like right? there's something around that nature, right? Yeah. So there's the emotional side, but I think. Um, emotional to me because, oh my gosh, look at all the gains that I could be having. Um, <laughs> so is, is there something now, is there something that runs up the side of the vehicle? Lo looks like a little, uh, flap or something. I don't know what that is or some kind of a. Oh, the, the, is the air intake or, or the. No, the, like the whole length or virtually the whole length of the vehicle. I'm not sure. It break. might just, it, it, it's a what? That's a strake. Yeah. So strakes, uh, as would be the case for the, uh, let's see, um, uh, 
uh, X15, I believe. And it's not the case for the SR71. I think those had chines, but um, they're basically lifting bodies, um, allow, allowing for lifting surfaces, rather, allowing for the vehicle to uh, generate some lift itself without having, it's a compromise between having an actual wing and wanting to generate some lift um, uh, from the, but having the vehicle generate some lift itself. Also, you could, instrumentation could go in there, a bunch of other things could go in there and uh, plumbing, obviously, uh, mm -hmm. could also run okay. Yeah, so, so, okay, yeah, so I guess since you're a big fan of Allen Bond and all that, you're probably familiar with like Hotel. And I remember one problem yeah. that they had was that by having the engine to the back of the vehicle, the, the back of the vehicle like began to sink and mm -hmm. like the nose pitched up. And that was a huge, huge problem that they had to, you know, like obviously redesign the whole thing for. So is that something that would be an issue here? Yeah, no, it, it wouldn't. Um, in fact, NASA did a study. I'll, I'll touch on that. NASA did a study on the, 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 the redesign, the, the Skylon system. Well, it turns out there's a phenomenon known as uh, PI, PIFS, uh, plume-induced flow separation. And um, at mm -hmm. really high altitudes, um, as the uh, exhaust, um, as the nozzle underspans the, uh, uh, the exhaust uh, plume, some of it impinges on the side of the vehicle, right? And so the, the engine for the Skylon is located at sort of the center line of the vehicle. Um, and so it expands onto the side of the vehicle the insulation that comes with that and the fact that it's a hydrogen fuel system and we all know, you know, it's a little slow with hydrogen and and, uh, and uh, the insulation concerns for that. Um, and so the Skylon has to deal with deal with that. Um, and it's actually quite problematic. Um, the, the NASA study says, and it's got to be a redesign. You can't make the wings any larger. Uh, it's going to increase drag. And there's a whole bunch of things that comes with that. And so, so that's just, that's something to, to be noted. Um, and with the, uh, with the HOTOL, um, we, we're going with the same design as, you know, uh, as most rockets. The key thing here is ensuring that your center of gravity is always, I mean, sort of 101, um, always ahead uh, of your center of pressure. Um, we have specific ways to ensure that that's the case and we don't have the same problem as they did with that design. Uh, they are a vertical, I mean, horizontal takeoff system, uh, which makes that a little bit complex, uh, complicated. Um, control surfaces and, and what have you, that's not the case here. This is basically what would be a conventional rocket. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, your propulsion system is located downstream of everything else, your, your nozzle, as, as it were, and then um, payload and fuel is located above that. And the same configuration, we go with the same configuration um, as long as you have your CG and CP uh, 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 trim at the right places, uh, you wouldn't have that problem, uh, you know, as would be the case with every other rocket that's operational today. So Cool. Strikes. Yeah. Yeah. The reason for the strikes would be at certain altitudes, the center of gravity will move, obviously, as the fuel, as you drain fuel and all of that stuff. And those strikes are designed uh, for when we have a significant portion of the flight in the hor hor horizontal, uh, being horizontal, as it were, uh, that you're able to generate some lift. It actually balances out and cancels out uh, and ensures that the uh, uh, sort of the counter effect of having a mass at a specific place ensures that the vehicle is actually properly balanced uh, during that phase of flight. So all of that stuff is being looked at, and obviously we're going to keep collecting more and more data to ensure that the vehicle is as stable as possible. Okay, so I guess we didn't really talk about why 
make an air breathing engine at all, which obviously has to do with efficiency, which means, or more specifically, that you don't have to carry your own liquid oxygen on board, right? Uh, so I guess take it from there and explain uh, why this is so much better than a conventional rocket, hopefully. Sure. Um, yeah, that's a keyword right there. But yeah, in a, in a nutshell, it's uh, it really is. Uh, it boils down to the the amount of mass that you um, could deliver to a given orbit, um, and if you're able to carry less um, mass on board, um, that is mass that will be expended, um, and you're able to get that mass from somewhere else, um, uh, well, the atmosphere in this case, that allows for us for a set performance. Uh, uh, that allows for you to carry even more payload uh, and reduces the cost. Uh, Air breathing is also quite reasonably more reliable, reasonably more reliable than rocket systems because the operational environment is not as extreme um, as uh, are, as would be the case for uh, for rocket systems. The combination of both factors allows for uh, for us to bring bring costs down significantly. In a nutshell, that really that's really what it boils down to. It's just a question of how, how reliable is the system? How efficient is the system? How much stuff am I having to carry that I could get somewhere else for free? Obviously not for free because um, air is not as dense. You have this air intake system that are complex and you have to compress the air um, and you have to cool that air down and, and what have you. The, the, the trick would be to try to do all of that stuff um, and stay below within the limits or below what would be considered better than uh, a similar rocket system, pr- pretty much. And and so you have to find a, a sweet spot. We uh, we found a sweet spot where yes, we're having to deal with the challenges of air breathing, and trust me, there are a lot of them. But at the same time, the the gains we're getting are significant enough that it actually beats out uh, the rocket alternative and this this is the this is the challenge uh, and that's the solution we are uh, we are for. so i remember and i don't remember too many details but i remember somebody bringing this point up to Elon Musk and he said that having to take in a whole bunch of gas the vast majority of which you can't actually use you know because it's mostly just nitrogen so he thought that it didn't work out because you still have these heavy big engines on the side um, or, you know, these big air intakes that aren't actually just not as efficient as they would need to be in order to justify the added weight. Um, but you're saying that that's not the case, right? Musk is, uh, uh, I mean, this is sort of the the, the most obvious, uh, Captain Obvious or what have you, but Musk <laughs> is an incredibly uh, brilliant guy, smart guy, but he isn't the uh, the know-all of the aerospace industry. We, we had industry giants in the past that disagreed on several, I mean, the, the whole thing, the whole battle between uh, Edison and Tesla and, and, and name it. And so, and, and it, it'll be the case that he's also invested in Tesla, I mean, in, in SpaceX and would promote ideas that are within the convenient within their sort of their roadmap. Everything systems do have um, a future in launch. And I, in my, uh, in my perspective and opinion are the future of, of launch systems. Um, and I could, uh, hold, hold my own any day, um, with anyone, uh, most included who, uh, doesn't, uh, agree with that. The, the nitrogen in, um, in, in air, in the, um, in the air that we ingest in, um, is actually, uh, a good thing in some ways because it adds to the total mass. Um, you look at the trust equation; it adds to the total mass that is um, uh, being ejected by the. Uh, well, I'll give you a good example, a good way to look at it. 
uh, the space shuttle main engine, uh, the RS-25s of this world and, and what have you, they have a specific mixture ratio. These are hydrogen-powered systems. They have a specific mixture ratio that has an excess that uh, results in an excess. I believe the J2 and the J2X are the same, have the same, uh, similar, sort of close enough similar mixture ratios that uh, sees them have an excess of hydrogen in the exhaust plume. Um, and so they're burning fuel and, and hydrogen, uh, they're burn, burning um, oxygen and hydrogen, but you have an excess, more hydrogen than uh, all the oxygen could burn. And the reason for that is when you have that extra mass, it's more efficient to accelerate that hydrogen mass out the nozzle by heating it up, by heating it up and accelerating then actually burning it with oxygen. And in the same way, all of that nitrogen that you have in air, while they're not reactive mass, because they're not reacting for combustion, they actually add mass that is um, expelled, um, that, are, that is expelled at the nozzle. Um, and they also serve to reduce the temperature of the reaction, which is why everything systems tend to operate uh, much cooler than rocket systems are. If you are able to operate with the same pressure ratios um, and what have you, and the ways to do that, um, then you, there are literally ways to bring your pressure ratios as close enough to a rocket system as you could whilst being, uh, and in fact, the guys at uh, Reaction Engines, they, they, they're demonstrating this. So you're basically operating as a rocket with the same, uh, uh, with the same pressures, uh, but you're taking advantage of nitrogen and in terms of its cooling capability, and but in terms of the fact that you're generating more trust um, for, for, well, for nothing as it were. So I, I do not disagree, with, I do not agree rather uh, with his assertion. Not in the least. All right. Well, I think it's about time to wrap up. This has been really uh, a fantastic, fascinating conversation. I'm, I'm really glad that we got to sit down and, and pick your brain for a little bit. So our, our traditional penultimate question is, where would you like to be found on the internet? Oh, well, thank, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, I thought it was a very engaging conversation, and um, um, I, I did love the questions. Uh, and I hope that the answers that I gave were as detailed and explanatory as possible. Um, you could find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle on Twitter is Othniel Creator. And I do have a blog uh, where I post my thoughts and on many different subject matters. Um, it's OthnielCreator.com. Um, and then obviously you could check out some of the stuff that we're doing at Air Breathing. Uh, the, we're doing, um, as would be the case for the, um, our aeros the aerospace uh, company and the, the launch vehicle propulsion system, subject matter we discussed over the hour at um, airbreathing.space. So those would be the three places to, uh, to grab hold of me if you wanted to. So our last question or set of questions, um, overrated or underrated? Uh, five things here, and you have to tell us whether or not you think that these things are overrated or underrated in your opinion. Sure. All right. So the first thing is a vertical integration. Uh, underrated. Single stage to orbit vehicles. Overrated. Mm, okay. That's interesting. Expendable vehicles. Underrated. Believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. Yeah. It's kind of, this just kind of makes me want to ask more questions. Landing with parachutes. Hmm. Underrated. Yeah. I, th I think I agree with that too. Yeah. All right. And the last one, is this a Kerbal thing? All right. And Jeb's recklessness. <laughs> um, definitely underrated. I'm all about Jeb. <laughs> um, so, uh, and I'm going to add to the uh, expendable, expendable vehicles, uh, briefly. Um, I, I do think the future of, uh, launch is definitely, um, uh, sort of reusable systems without any doubt. 
the reason I said underrated is there might still be applications, especially with the new paradigm in industry. There might be there might still be applications where um, um, expanding a stage might be the best way, only way to do a mission. Obviously, until we develop capability to uh, reuse everything, uh, certainly the upper stage is still expandable at this point. And so the emphasis on reusability is great, but um, I think we need to build that capability for those systems to be truly re reusable, whatever that means. I mean, my car is reusable. I, I don't really think about reusing it it's within the scope of rocketry. Uh, we think about that because vehicles are have right. traditionally been expendable. So that's what I meant. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't mean to do sucker punches with uh, overrated, underrated, but like it, it kind of feels like it could be because it's not explicitly stated that being overrated or underrated is a reflection on our society, not just the technology itself. So right. <laughs> you're, right. you're good. Yeah. You're good with your caveats. Okay. Well, great. Again, thank you so much. This was uh, an absolute joy. Uh, I think uh, we definitely need to get you back on next time you hit a milestone. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I, I will, I will be in touch if that's what it takes. And if you guys want to, uh, shoot us an email and say, Hey, something cool's coming up. Let's schedule for the month after. Like, great. Let's do it. You, uh, you have a, an open ticket whenever you want to come back on the show. You are always welcome. Certainly. I appreciate that. Thanks for uh, having me and, uh, looking forward to, uh, having more conversations with a lot of concrete sort of developments and all of that. <laughs> yeah, that'll be really cool. So, this week in spaceflight history, we have some winners. We have Ben Hallert, Christian Lowe, Deskin Miller, Cy Kyle, and The Greek. And the clue is a first from the last frontier. And so this is kind of like your last clue, uh, which was the beginning of the... I don't remember already, but the end of the beginning right. and the beginning of the... <laughs> the salvaging. The salvaging, yeah. okay. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of firsts and lasts, uh, mm -hmm. but what is this clue about? This was the best I could come up with, but I think it fits, and it fits for the event on the 30th of September, 2001, and it was the first orbital launch from Pacific Spaceport Complex, Alaska. And right then and there, uh, oh, you yeah. got the first. Yeah. It's the first orbital launch, and what is Alaska's uh, state nickname? The Frontier State. Well, no, last, sorry, not yeah. the last frontier. State, the last frontier. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. You know, and, and I, I actually knew that, but I hadn't thought about it. Like that's, ah. it, that's pretty obvious. It's yeah, the last frontier, Alaska. And so there we have it. So. The uh, Yeah, so this was the event. Now, to give a little bit of history, or I don't want to go into too much detail about the history of the uh, spaceport because we covered quite a lot of it in episode 284. And so we had a downlink with Mark Lester um, from the uh, Alaska Aerospace Corporation, and uh, he touched on uh, not just the establishment of the spaceport, which was interesting, um, the fact that it was set up, uh, this this uh, AAC, the Alaska Aerospace Corporation, was set up by the state specifically to diversify the economy into aerospace. And so there's a lot of uh, uh, great details there and, uh, you know, uh, them acting as advisors for this uh, this range in Camden. I remember us talking about that a little bit as well. And so... There's a lot of things. Go give it. Go give it a listen. Episode two eighty four. And so, uh, uh, one little piece of history, because uh, right, is that notice this is the first orbital launch from uh, the Pacific Spaceport Complex, Alaska. Uh, the first launch ever was uh, three years earlier, uh, the sixth of November in nineteen ninety eight. And so, this was a suborbital launch. It was didn't have a, a cute name for the rocket. It was a SR nineteen M fifty seven A one, which is just the name of the second and third stages that were strapped together 
for the rocket, that's the first and second stage, but they were the second and third stages of a Minuteman 2. So if you remove the, the first step of a Minuteman 2 and you launch that from Alaska, that's what you had. And uh, there were a couple other suborbital launches between 1998 and 2001 when the first orbital launch uh, took place. And that orbital launch had the name Kodiak Star. And so I guess it was kind of a uh, they gave it a nice mission title. I'm sure there was a great patch out there floating somewhere on the interwebs, although I didn't notice it in particular. <laughs> Probably has a big bear on it. Let me see, actually. Maybe it's on this fact sheet. No, no bears, mm. alas. Uh, just uh, Kodiak written with the uh, the O as a five-pointed star and a nice little uh, outline of Alaska underneath it with a description of the payloads. Yeah, so, so, so this one, you know, carried four payloads to orbit. Uh, there was one NASA-sponsored satellite, and then three that were from the Department of Defense's uh, Space Test Program, or STP, and they were released into different orbits. So the NASA satellite was called Starshine 3. As you can imagine, there were other Starshines, and in fact, these ones, uh, 1 and 2, were launched from shuttles, uh, although 2 was actually launched after Starshine 3, after this event, um, in, a, in a shuttle mission. I think it was Endeavor, and it launched uh, shortly after uh, this event. Uh, so the, they didn't make it to space uh, at the same time. But this one was really cool. It was built uh, as, and I'm sure the other ones were as well, uh, but this one specifically was built uh, as part of the Rocky Mountain Space Grant Consortium, which I think now goes by uh, the, the Utah, uh, the, the name Utah Space Grant. And so these are really awesome organizations all over the United States. Um, I don't know if organization is the right term, but essentially it's an opportunity for students to build things. And I was actually involved in Arizona's uh, Space Grant Consortium uh, briefly uh, for a year, a couple of years ago. And it's just really cool the different things that you can do as part of them. And so uh, this one uh, specifically, Starshines, are these one meter diameter uh, optically reflective spheres. Yeah, they're, they're Oscars. They're, yeah, right. They're kind of like Oscars, except these ones are, uh, it wasn't Oscar... Um, Mostly about communicating with via, you know, ham radios and things like that. Yes, but let me, I, I want to hear your details, but it, um, Starshine 3 is actually, is also called Oscar 43. So it is literally an Oscar. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, but, but <laughs> ah. go ahead, get, give us that, uh, that caveat. No, no, no. Oh yeah. No, that, that's really cool. I didn't know about that. Uh, but yeah, so, so th yeah, the reason I was starting to, talk about radio versus, uh, well, I was talking about, you know, when Oscar's more focused on the radio because Starshine, uh, with that kind of name, was a very optically reflective uh, uh, satellite. And so the idea was you would have these 1,500 one-inch diameter mirrors coated all on the outsides. And the idea from the ground was it was visible with the naked eye. And so not only, you're right, there, there was, a, uh, there was a, a beacon on there. It, it had the solar powers were just powerful enough for it to basically emit, uh, you know, hmm. a beacon at one very specific frequency, uh, mm -hmm. but that was used uh, by uh, identifying that frequency um, and the the, mag the magneto torque on the satellite itself. You could actually tie some uh, science about the ionosphere out of that, mm. um, which is pretty neat. Yeah. So, so just just for reference, Oscar stands for orbiting satellite carrying amateur radio. So if you if you didn't recognize that and you're wondering how we immediately clued into what that meant, it's because it's an acronym. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, 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 and 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 that was definitely a uh, this week in spaceflight history that you had done, Ben. I remember where we where remember the Oscar seven, and I only know that it's Oscar seven because I'm looking at the notes now. <laughs> the Oscar Oscar seven was that one that basically went off the map, and then 20 years later was reacquired mm, from the ground. Mm -hmm. 
uh, yeah. people were able to communicate with again. So really, really uh, cool story there. So even if you don't want to listen to that whole episode, which I don't know which episode it is off the top of my head. Yeah, you can search on our website. We're not going to look it up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go, <laughs> go, go use our search engine uh, or just check out uh, the Wikipedia entry on Oscars uh, satellites because it's really interesting stuff happening there. So yeah, so this Starshine 3 was the NASA payload. Uh, there was uh, four Starshines in all. So before I leave talking about this satellite and uh, space grant consortiums, which again are set up all throughout the country, uh, Delta V in the chat is talking about the uh, the Virginia Space Grant Consortium and how they attended it for a few weeks in high school and how and it's a high recommend coming from Delta V. <laughs> so uh, the Langley Experience is a mission slash program planning simulation. Oh, very nice. And so, yeah, if there's something you want to get involved in, uh, uh, keep an eye out for these because they're, they're really good. And so, uh, you know, the one that I was involved with, uh, had community college students, uh, build meteorological payloads that we would then send up on high altitude balloons. And, uh, actually, you know, because of how much they expand, you could see them from the ground even when they're at like a hundred thousand feet, uh, which is when they would typically pop and then fall back down to earth. And then you have to go retrieve it in the middle of the Arizona desert, which was a lot of fun. But anyway, getting back to the event, the other satellites uh, for the STP uh, program were PicoSat, uh, which was built by Surrey Satellite Technology, you know, in England. And this uh, PicoSat had four payloads uh, that, that would uh, test. Uh, one of the payloads was testing flexible polymer batteries. Um, the other uh, three or two of the ones were related to uh, ionospheric effects, uh, just measuring the electron content of the ionosphere, as well as how the ionosphere interacts with uh, GPS and affects your GPS signal. And uh, the fourth payload was a, uh, a technology, uh, uh, I guess, a mission or a technology payload that was related to uh, passive and active vibration control for any sensors that you have that care about position. And so, you know, uh, uh, basically, you know, uh, uh, kind of a tech demo-ish sort of thing. Another one of the STP payloads was the Prototype Communication Satellite, or PCSAT. And so this was the first of a series that was built by U.S. Naval Academy midshipmen. Uh, and uh, specifically, it was a comm satellite for uh, remote travelers. So if you only had a handheld or mobile radio, you could communicate with this. And the midshipmen would were keeping track of things. And this was an interesting little bunny hole to go down because this is something I had seen all the time, but I never knew many details about it. And have either of you heard of the uh, of APRS or are familiar with APRS? No, I was just about to Google it because it sounds like a fun mm. protocol. It is. Yes. Yeah, so, so it stands for Automatic Packet Reporting System. And the upshot is if you've ever watched amateurs launch a balloon, for example, like the mm -hmm. ones I was referring to before, or, uh, you know, any sort of thing. What this is, is it's a system, right, that takes, uh, it could take actually a lot of different things, but for example, it could take GPS positions of, say, you, and then transmit it to the interwebs, because there's a system of receive-only computers that are set up that just take this information and then post it online at uh, APRS.fi. And yeah, so so it's a gateway network, right? Like that's what that's what we call things like that. I was gonna say you you I, I imagine you know the jargon better than I do, and so yeah, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. It's a gateway so, so, network. Mm. Yeah, so so you've got gateways that connect to the internet, but you also have what they call digipeters, which are um, mm -hmm. relay stations. They they're repeaters that can get your signal to a gateway, um, which they call iGates. 
and, and like th- this is really cool because um, there's another network for that's built for IoT devices. It, it's basically a, a LoRa WAN. Um, so Laura is like this low power radio protocol that's really slick, but you can, mm. um, basically buy a COTS product that you plug into power in the internet and it becomes uh, a gateway for Laura devices using this protocol. And it, it includes, um, like their layer on top of Laura also includes like some, um, encryption, which I don't know if APRS does. Um, but it kind of reminds me of the same thing where, you know, just anybody can put up a gateway or a repeater and help mm. others get their data into the internet. That's, it's really cool. And so they put one of these things in space. So, sorry. So, so like you're saying, <laughs> this could be very useful, uh, for kind of, you know, uh, helping people. Basically, you, you could share information. Much more easily, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a, is a network of sharing amateur information, and so if you're an off-roader, for example, uh, you you probably want to uh, go and buy. They, they sell these yellow beacon transmitters uh, that mm-hmm. I'd seen, and you can just go and get one of these and be able to not only kind of have your position broadcast so people know where you are and where they could find you if you need to get emergency rescue or anything like that, but you can actually send. Uh, uh, some small, you know, mini tweets, almost like basic, like little text messages. It's able to uh, uh, relay that kind of information as well. So you could kind of give a status report on where you are, or you know, a call for help in SOS or something like that. Or more probably, uh, send uh, weather data packets back home because you are a little yellow box connected to a temperature sensor that is stuck in the snow on some mountain, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's versatile. And there's, there's YouTube videos uh, that kind of explain it and break it down for you. And so it's really neat. And plus you can, again, that APRS.FI website, you can just go there and see what's, what's part of the network around your, your town, whether it's a, it's a fixed station or it's somebody who's broadcasting because they're out, you know, off-roading, or if it's somebody who sent a weather balloon and you want to track that weather balloon, um, it, it basically ties it to a Google Maps sort of looking interface and you can see what's going on around you. So uh, if you're if you're in the U.S., at least uh, definitely check that out. Yeah. So their, their main website is APRS-IS.net for uh, Internet service. Um, and then the uh, APRS.FI is just a Google map. And yeah, mm-hmm. wouldn't you know it? There are a bunch down by the college. There's one by the airport. Like this is really cool. I I, I love non-internet networks, right? Because these these yeah. terminate in the internet, like by definition. But like you can have access to the internet without having to use a cell phone or something like that. Like that. It's really cool that people. That we live in a future where mostly amateur electronic enthusiasts can put things together like this and build a network that is robust enough to, I could probably talk to it if I got up on high enough of a hill up here in my town. Like, this is really mm-hmm. cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And, 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 and that's, and that's a good, uh, transition back to why, why am I yapping about this APRS in the first place? Uh, this PC sat was essentially going to be one of the, uh, the, the mediums for, you know, 
uh, broadcasting to the different, uh, I guess, digipeters on the ground. Again, I don't know how to use the jargon very well in this world. Uh, but yeah. And so that, that was, that was the goal of that by adding a lot of links to remote locations, because now you've got an orbital uh, relay, I guess, right? Would relay be the right word? You know, it takes mm-hmm. a signal from one and sends it to somewhere else. So yeah. And so that's PCSAT. And then finally, the fourth payload on board the Kodiak Star mission was the uh, Sapphire was called Sapphire. Uh, it was built by Stanford and also operated by U.S. Naval Academy uh, folks. And it had a, a handful of instruments on there that were, you know, doing different things, including one that was a voice synthesizer microchip, which, uh, from what I understand, I guess this is 2001. So if you think about where we were tech-wise in 2001 with the uh, <laughs> with cell phones, uh, for example, that it would it would essentially take a text message. You, you could send it a text signal. And it would convert that into, I mean, it's, I guess, voice to, or text to voice, I guess. And, and so if you had a little radio, you'd be able to hear it say something at you. <laughs> uh, I posted a screen cap in the, in the chat of a raw packet feed. And so you can see that some of this is kind of nonsensical. That, that is, uh, looking like, uh, identifiers to me, like, uh, protocol and, and identifiers. Um, cause like some of it says TCP IP. So that, that's saying I want to use this protocol, but like none of this is encrypted as far as I can tell. There's like GPS coordinates. There's one message that just says running on RTL dongle, RPI with RTL SDR. Like this is, this is cool. Oh, I'm glad to turn you on to it. I mean, I, yeah, like, like I said, you know, I, I've been seeing this, uh, most recently with the, at the U of A, there's a group, uh, called Space Treks, um, that, uh, you know, runs out of the, uh, aerospace mechanical engineering department. And one of the uh, many things that they do there, they have a number of students who really kind of really like taken, they came up with this idea and really ran with it on their own. I don't think they invented the concept, but, uh, this is much more student-led than faculty-led, but they have been flying these Pico balloons. And so essentially it's just, you know, it's, it's a, it's a little transmitter on there that can communicate with the APRS network. And it just, and I guess, you know, and then ham radios and other places all over the world. And they launched these and they actually are able to survive long enough that uh, of the two that they've flown since I've been, uh, since I've known them, one of them did, in fact, circumnavigate the globe. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it lasts for, you know, many days. Uh, it's, it's pretty wild. Now, uh, finally, so, I, you know, I talked about, you know, the payloads on here. Um, and finally, just to wrap it up, what about the rocket and the mission itself? And so the rocket was an Athena-1. And so this was a, a three-stage rocket. Uh, the first stage was a Castor-120, uh, which is a solid motor. That was the first step of a Peacekeeper missile. And the uh, second stage was the equipment section boost motor uh, or ESBM. Sorry, I, never asked, I keep jumping back and forth between steps and stages because I don't, I want to kind of be technically correct, but this one would be a step because it's not talking about the whole rocket. It's just talking about this middle section, which is the step. So the second step was the, uh, is, was called the uh, equipment section boost motor or ESBM. And this also had a single uh, solid on there, an Orbis 21D motor. And finally, the third uh, uh, and final step, which uh, depending on where you go, they wouldn't even call it that. They would just say like this was the final thing that was taking things up. And they refer to this as a two-stage rocket, which... So so what's the difference between a stage and a step? So like when the Saturn V first stage, right? You uh-huh. think of it being the S1C, right? Right. But during that first stage of flight, it's the whole rocket. 
So the S1C plus everything above it is the first stage. The S1C is the first step. And so I it would be accurate see. to yeah. So that, that's that that's that distinction between a step versus a stage. Okay, I'm glad I'm glad that you were specific about that because I don't think I've ever I don't think I've ever heard that terminology. But like it, it totally makes sense. And like now, if somebody refers to a step, I'll know what they're talking about. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> Sure. Cool. And so uh, this this final one, the Orbit Adjust Module or OAM, had uh, four MR107 hydrazine engines on there, which are this was this you know, it doesn't take a lot to surprise me or for me to find something new. But had you ever? Uh, I, I it just seems odd to me to have a rocket that's you know uh, a single you know motor, a single motor, and then four engines on top. You know what I mean? Like I feel like you usually taper down yeah. from a higher number to a lower number, and not usually yeah. one, one, and then four. Yeah, but, unless, unless you're an Atlas with two uh, two engines on the upper stage. But the first stage was a motor or an engine? A motor. Well, that might be why I think just because I don't. Those yeah. are different. I mean, you can't have like. Well, you could have multiple motors, obviously, but that would be you know like strap-on yeah, shuttle did, right? Yeah. <laughs> right, the strap-ons exactly. <laughs> Part of this too is I think it also is a matter of perspective because it's like I said, there, you know, I'd seen some sources refer to it as a two-stage rocket, mm-hmm. and so it's it's almost like this orbit adjust module. Yeah, there's four engines strapped on there, but it's kind of like you know four thrusters, you know what I mean? It, it's, yeah. it's the final leg. It's its own spacecraft at that point. And so um, that might be kind of the, uh, you know, thinking of it from that perspective, it's a little less strange to go from uh, motor, motor, and then a whole bunch of engines or four engines at least. Yeah. So, so the, the, the legacy of the Athena, it only launched four times. Uh, the first was from Vandenberg, but was uh, uh, terminated uh, because it had some problems with its uh, thrust uh, vector control. And uh, then there was another two more launches from Vandenberg and the Cape. And so this one, taking the uh, Kodiak Star mission, was its final launch. And hmm. so it was successful. They uh, launched at 0240 UTC or actually 1040 PM the night before. So even though this is, you know, it's always that kind of issue uh, of what date do you give? So it's the 30th of September in UTC time, but for... Uh, the United States and Alaska in particular, it was actually the evening of September 29th. But mercifully, right, that still falls within the window. So I didn't inadvertently screw up the clue again, <laughs> or at least the, the date range for the clue. And so, yeah. So this uh, this launch uh, actually followed quite a few scrubs uh, uh, due to weather as well as auroral conditions. So uh, there was a number of uh, solar flares and coronal mass ejections that uh, resulted in a particle flux exceeding uh, the guidance system limit of the rocket uh, that hmm. it would be able to fly safely in there. And I believe uh, Chris, uh, a.k.a. Sty Garfield, we had, uh, we had talked um uh, uh with him in the chat as well as possibly during that downlink with Mark Lester episode 284 we had talked about how whether or not upper atmosphere like, like yeah like auroral conditions can affect uh spaceflight and Chris was pointing out it, it certainly affects flying aircraft and yeah. so uh as far as launching rockets the same uh same thing happens yeah it's it's not it's not the aurora that are the issue it's what's causing the aurora <laughs> right oh, okay right. yes <laughs> so those currents flowing up there and so you know uh like i mentioned it, it went to two different uh orbits and so they actually first uh uh you know did a pair of, or did a burn to get out to uh 
uh, 800 kilometers circular orbit where it would deploy the uh, STP payloads, the three of them. And then it did uh, two more burns to lower into a 470 kilometer circular orbit where it would release the, you know, the shiny star, um, <laughs> Starshine 3. <laughs> disco ball. No, no, isn't that disco ball also? I mean, we just talked about a recent launch of a disco ball, right? But is this the same thing, but just a, a, like another launch of it or a, or a separate satellite altogether? Like, you know, a, I don't, I don't remember. I mean, at least I think it was recently and not a reference to this event. Um, yes. Yes. Well, maybe. So Starshine 4, which is, yeah, the same series, the same okay. sort of thing, it's the same was series. launched. And I had this in the notes and I skipped it. Sorry. Uh, that one was launched only last year. Yeah. In 2020 on Launcher uh-huh. 1's failed maiden flight. Oh. Yep. Yeah. That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Oh, yeah, interesting. Good, good, good catch, David. Yeah. yeah, that was a good connection. Thank you. Yeah, I, I literally had that written in the notes right up here, and I <laughs> I just glossed over it for some reason. And so after deploying, it lowered itself to a 215 by 400 kilometer orbit and uh, decayed and was back in the atmosphere on fire in a couple months. And so that was uh, <laughs> just a quick little rundown of the, you know, the first orbital launch from Pacific Spaceport Complex, Alaska, which... Uh, has had a nice long heritage over the last 20 years, including scooting out the front gate mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah. the most unique launch I think any of us have ever witnessed. That's the feature of this week in spaceflight history, and the, and the clue has to have something to do with the... Yeah. yeah. Now slide to the left. Yeah, slide to the left, then to go up or something like that. Yeah, Yeah, and so uh, before we take off, just the uh, the Athena, uh, I, I didn't mention, um, when, when it first flew, the first couple of times, it had various names of like... Uh, the Lockheed Martin vehicle or the Lockheed Martin launch vehicle or, you know, uh, things like that. And so, yeah, so this was a, this was a, a Lockheed rocket. Thanks, uh, Dennis. That, that was, that was good. I mean, it's like a really simple event, but like, I, I love when we can take these really simple, easily forgotten kind of things and like just tear them little pieces and find every little bit of interest. And that certainly had, uh, had a lot of interest, at least for me. Okay. So, um, Next week is the 5th through the 11th of October. Uh, David, do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. All right. So next week's clue is in 1967. And the clue is this event in spaceflight history requires a total of 88 articles. If you want the whole story, 88 articles. Yeah. So that's counting definite and indefinite articles. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. If you have an idea of what this might be, Go ahead and shoot us your guess on Twitter. Use the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck, everybody. Good luck. Okay, so moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. Back to just you and me, Ben. <laughs> we have uh, four of them. So what's the first one? All right, so first up is an Epsilon rocket uh, flying Rays 2 and others, <laughs> is what uh, Launch Library says. Um, so Rays 2 uh, is a tortured acronym. It's RA from RAPID. Uh, innovation payload, no letter from payload, demonstration satellite, and satellite takes the S from the beginning and the E from the end, R-A-I-S-E, Rapid Innovation Payload Demonstration Satellite 2. Um, And then there are going to be seven other payloads, Um, DRUMS, which is a debris removal, unprecedented microsatellite, fantastic tortured acronym, Uh, Hibari, ZSAT, and four uh, little tiny CubeSats, One one of which is called NanoDragon, which which is a cool name. So Epsilon uh, is the uh, Japanese commercial rocket. Um, so this is going to be flying out of um, Uchinora 
in Japan, which is pretty cool. Uh, this launch will be taking place on Friday, October the 1st. The launch window is not zero, but it's also not a launch window. The, the launch window is pretty short. It's a 10 minute launch window, uh, from 048 hours UTC to 059 hours UTC again on the, on the first. Then after that, on the 30th, we have coverage of, uh, the undocking of the, 23rd Cargo Dragon from the International Space Station, and the coverage of that begins at 8.45, but the undocking is scheduled at 9.05, and of course, this is all Eastern Daylight Time. It says, according to the NASA TV website, that Splashdown will not be broadcast on NASA TV. So I don't know why that is. Do you have any thoughts as to why that would be? Like uh, Maybe a, a programming conflict? Yeah, they've got a um, they've got a NASA Science Live for Landsat 9. Uh, okay. scheduled later that day. So I'm assuming that'd be why SpaceX might be broadcasting it on their YouTube page. Let's take a look. They, they don't have it scheduled yet. They, they may do it, but it's not scheduled right now. Okay. After that, we've got a dragon leaving the ISS and then we have a Soyuz launching to the ISS. This is Soyuz MS-19. Uh, so the 19th, uh, Soyuz in the MS configuration. Of course, uh, as always, it's launching on top of a Soyuz 21A. Um, and on board is going to be Anton Shkoplerov, uh, and then the film crew for, uh, a, a movie. Um, and I believe the movie is called Challenge. So that's, uh, Shipenko and Parasild. And yeah, zero G movies are cool. So this Soyuz is launching on Tuesday, October the 5th. So the same day that our show comes out, uh, next, next week. Um, and it's going to be launching at 0855 UTC. 0855 and five seconds. Cause I know, David, you like the seconds. Uh-huh. Uh, UTC. So shortly after that, just a few hours later, coverage begins on the docking of that same Soyuz with the International Space Station. So this is like a really quick. What is the name for it? Um, the specific name for that type of a rendezvous? I think I think it's a two-orbit rendezvous. I'm not sure. They might call it the four-hour rendezvous or two-hour rendezvous, but I thought it was called something else. I don't remember. But suffice to say, oh. it's very quick. Um, <laughs> very very quick. Uh, just a couple hours later, uh, they are docking with uh, the International Space Station. So yeah, that coverage begins at 7.30. Um, the hatch opening is scheduled for 9.30. And once again, that is Eastern Standard Time or Eastern Daylight Time. Check that out. Yeah, it's called the Two Orbit Express. Yeah, I think the word express is express. what I was looking for. It was like the yeah, ex- yeah. express rendezvous. Yeah, that's pretty good. All righty. Well, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Okay, so that's it. Let's deal with the show. And we'd like to thank Ronald Jiggies and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. Uh, this week in today's recording and on our early interview or our early uh, This Week in Spaceflight History that we recorded, um, we'd like to thank uh, Stanley, Colin, Delta V, Kenton, and and Sty Garfield for showing up and helping us uh, get our facts checked. Yep. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. 
Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And you can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links. We are Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you next time on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody.